This episode of Return to Base is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran owned and serves premium coffee and content to people who love America. We already know that Black Rifle Coffee roasts the best Colombian and Brazilian beans on the planet in their facilities in Manchester, Tennessee, and Salt Lake City. But did you know that Black Rifle Coffee Company is on a mission to hire 10,000 veterans in the next five years? This is why I pick their coffee over others and drink it every time and everywhere, from bumping around in Humvees all the way to sitting here recording this podcast. Black Rifle Coffee Company is the real deal. They put up when others shut up. If you're ready to taste the freedom, go to blackriflecoffee.com slash RTB and use coupon code RTB20 for 20% off your one-time order or coffee club membership. Hey, and while you're there, sign up for the coffee club. It's a subscription-based coffee experience. They'll send monthly shipments of coffee right to your door so you never miss a fill-up of freedom. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Return to Base. This is the 16th episode of this podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you've listened to all the podcasts, thank you for your continued support. So Brett Allen, Brett served as a lieutenant with the 10th Mountain Division, where he served in Fort Drum, of course, and then later on in Afghanistan as a staff officer. So he channeled those experiences into a novel. Kilroy Was Here is a satirical novel that follows the inane and extraordinary events that occur while deployed to America's longest war. If any of you out there have deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever, you know that uh, there's just a list of characters and, and funny things that happen. As tragic as war is, it's pretty fucking funny, too. So uh, without further ado, Brett Allen. Enjoy. Bravo Zulu, this is Victor Lima. We are RTB. This is Return to Base, a Better in Life podcast. Brett Allen, what's going on, man? How are you doing, Cliff? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to come on. I know I had to to twist your arm a bit. Um, we don't we don't get too many renowned authors uh, and such, and certainly not any officers and gentlemen uh, on the Return to Base podcast. So I appreciate you you coming on and um, and would like to take this time really just to hear your story and hear what uh, what advice you have and and the route you take. See here on Return to Base, a lot of times what we like to do is. Um, veterans who are getting out or have been out sometimes they have no idea what they want to be when they grow up and who would have thought that we had enough people in the army who knew how to read and write <laughs> but we have one here who uh who wrote a book Kilroy was here so um thank you once again for coming on um so a cavalry officer what would you say a cavalry officer is considering we don't have that many horses in them anymore in the military, right? Right. And you, uh, you would be surprised. That is the number one question I get from people. Uh, when I tell them I used to be a cavalry officer, uh, they always ask me where they keep the horses in the army. So, um, at Arlington. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so our, uh, our training as cavalry officers, well, they lump you all in as armor officers to begin with. So right. you get to Fort, well, it was Fort Knox when I was there. Uh, now it's all down in Benning, I believe, in the Maneuver Center. 
Um, but our training was almost entirely on uh, Abrams tanks. <clears throat> so we uh, we got to rotate through all the positions on the tanks. Um, and then we all got divvied out to our, our units. And about half of us ended up going to light cavalry units where we never saw a tank again. Um, so for ourselves, once I got to... Uh, to Fort Drum, we were on Humvees for all of our training. All the gunnery and stuff was done on Humvees. Um, and then once we got into Afghanistan in 09, uh, we were all on MRAPs. Um, but of course, I was on staff by then. And so I was in a desk chair uh, for the entire oh, Right in that chair. Yep. You know, uh, a good friend of mine um, and a mentor, he once told me that his time spent as a calf scout was his favorite time in the military bar none. And you know, the stories that I've heard sounds like it. It's it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Yeah. Yeah. I I absolutely loved my time as a platoon leader. That was that was the funnest job I had in the army by far. Um it, it, being up at Fort Drum of the Tenth Mountain, I mean they pretty much just use you like a, a small infantry unit. I mean, we right. had half the number of guys and we were, um, basically running the same battle drills that all the infantry guys were running we weren't doing anything crazy, uh, cab specific. We had a few guys that got kicked out, to, uh, um, like reconnaissance schools and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was just pared down infantry from where I stood. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I can't, skip this section of your, your history without, and I might be skipping ahead a little bit, but that's fine. Right. Um, but whenever I think of Fort Drum, what do you think I think of first? Probably, uh, probably snow. Yes. Yes. Snow winter and all that. Um, sounds fucking horrible if I'm going to be honest, but you said you're from Michigan, right? Yeah. Yep. So I was, uh, used to the weather. I wasn't used to the packing list. So every time you hit the field, anytime after like October 1st or something like that, the packing list just triples and you have to take every ounce of cold weather gear that you've been issued out of the field with you, just in case you happen to get snowed in while you're out in a shooting range or something. Um, so that was interesting. Um, the weather always played a giant part in how long we were going to be able to stay out in training. And, uh, uh I don't know, but yeah, it, it was pretty much like Michigan here. So I, yeah. I've been dealing with it all my life. Right. And, um, my basic training drill sergeant, he spent some time up in Tenth mountain and, uh, you know, it would get cold. It would snow or sleet and we'd all wonder, Hey, it's like PT going to get canceled. And he always just tell us, he's like, PT never gets canceled at four drum. We would be in, he, he would, you know, I don't know if these are tall tales or not, but he basically said they would be in all the cold weather year they had in formation running in the snow. And I always thought, please don't go to four drum. <laughs> No, and I, you get issued just layers and layers of thermal gear. I still use some of the thermal gear that I got issued for hunting. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so your, your, your time at Fort Drum was, was well spent in the packed snow, the lake effects now. Is that right? Yep. Yep. So I got there in November of 2007. So I got to endure a nice cold winter right off the bat. 
And then uh, we uh, we left in December of 2008. So I got a partial winner on the on the back end. Mm, mm, yeah. Uh, so let's back up a little bit here. So, um, you know, we we like to know about the person and and part of that certainly is what ever compelled you to to join the military so you entered the military uh after ROTC in, in 2006 right so basically you were finishing high school and deciding to go ROTC in the almost immediate aftermath of 911 right so I was a senior in high school uh, when 9-11 happened and I had uh, contemplated joining right out of uh, high school. Uh, my parents kind of talked me into getting some college in. Um, I had already been accepted to state. So um, I did that and I, I didn't join the ROTC right away. I didn't really even consider that as an option. Um, I did my first year at state. Um, still wasn't hundred percent sure. I'm one of those people, like you said earlier, who doesn't know what they want to be when they grow up. So, um, I was switching majors. Uh, I switched majors like seven times and then, uh, sophomore year, I still was kind of floundering. Um, and then my dad found this, uh, two-year ROTC program um, that has like a catch-up program in the summer before your junior year. So a buddy of mine from high school uh, and I both signed up for that program. We got sent to Fort Knox for a month and uh, it was kind of like a a shortened basic training with drill sergeants and the whole nine yards. And then uh, we actually got lucky enough to get two airborne slots. So we went from there to Fort Benning um, and went through airborne school and then came back and signed our ROTC contracts and then started off uh, in ROTC our junior year um, and went um, through senior year. Um, So that was, I I had felt compelled to serve since uh, 9-11 happened. It just took me a while to get there. Yeah. Um, it seems like you took the short route, man. Can you believe it that there's some nerds out there who did like four years of that? <laughs> right. Yeah, I got to party for two years. And you got to uh, party for two years. Find yourself, right. Yep. Found your, you found yourself in a freaking box hole in Fort Knox. <laughs> rocking up heartbreak hill. Um, uh, yeah. 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 Uh, it, it's actually interesting because, uh, my basic training was actually at Fort Knox and oh. the old infantry barracks. Um, and I wasn't infantry. I w- huh? Was it one, four, six, alpha two, four, six. My, okay. my um, basic training company barracks. And um, I got to basic training September 22nd, 1998. And apparently the barracks, had been used most previously or most recently by ROTC cadets, right. In the same type of program you got. So, um, during one of our throwdown inspections where the drill sergeant just goes apeshit, um, they found a bra in, in, in my room. Like last, my last name starts with a V. So, uh, and they did everything alphabetically. And so there was a bay of people, um, 
where everybody slept. And then those of us who had a letter T or above, we had like four man rooms. Right. And so he came in our room, just tore everything up because it wasn't right. And he's like, what the fuck? <laughs> he knew, I mean, he knew, you know what I mean? And, and we were like, and uh, my battle buddy, whose name also started with a B was like, Drill sword. I don't know what where that came from. And he was just, you know, he was playing the part, but it, it, it was pretty funny. It was we we're like, what the hell? And then come to find out, um, he was like, yeah, the these barracks are are used by RTC in the um, in the summer. So, anyways, awesome. yeah, it's kind of a kind of interesting that you went through that same program, and hell, could have been people you knew. <laughs> not yeah. not quite, I guess, because it happened a couple of years earlier, but. Um, yeah. So, uh, what was your, what did you, what did you think of your first experience in the army there at Fort Knox in 2003? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it would have been summer of 2000, no, 2004, I guess, maybe, I don't know. Um, it, it was what I expected. Um, so usually with those like cadet, cadet programs from the sounds of it, they're usually like pretty tame on them. Uh, cause they know they're going back to college in a month anyway. Um, but the, we were informed before we went that we were going to be part of a test group that, uh, got to experience. That's always good. Yeah. Yeah. That got to experience like the full, drill sergeant experience where you get like the, the shark tank at the beginning and all that good stuff. And, um, so it was, it was interesting. I mean, they definitely went hard on us at least for the first two weeks. And there, we found out later that like 50% of the people that went, went back to RO to their programs at university and didn't sign contracts what they wanted to do so i think they kind of scrapped that and went back to the the kinder gentler uh officer training but um the real fun uh, was airborne school afterward Mm -hmm. um we got down there and the the normal alpha company barracks was being renovated so we got shipped over to this like it, it had been condemned and was being used as kind of a transient barracks, uh, for a while. And there was like inch thick mold, uh, like over every surface in the bathroom and cockroaches under the beds and stuff. And the first night we were there, uh, they called us all out of the barracks at like midnight. And one of the sergeants just reamed everybody for how dirty the barracks was and most of us had just walked in the door so hmm. we spent like the next five hours just scrubbing that thing from top to bottom and uh it, it only got worse from there but it, it was definitely interesting being a, a cadet that mm-hmm. hasn't even signed an army contract yet uh, you don't get treated very well but. that's pretty wild when when you think about it but yeah i was talking uh, a million when i went through there but. Yeah. You know, the funny part about that is uh, when I went to airborne school, I was at E5 and um, they they were like, you come here. And they called you November. They called us November was was what the NCOs were. And uh, when I found out that all the officers just stayed in hotels, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, we're over here like getting woken up at 11 p.m. and scrubbing crap uh, only for the lieutenants 
and stuff to be literally in hotel rooms. Yeah. That's pissed, man. <laughs> drifting into formation after everybody else. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. not. Uh, you know, it is what it is. It was a good experience. I didn't break anything. Thank God. How about yeah. you? Did you, did you hurt yourself? No, no, I was good the whole way through. Awesome. <laughs> I had got a mean case of poison ivy though, uh, at Fort Knox before I got down there. Oh yeah. So like my entire right side of my body was just poison ivy. And then it was July that we were there. So hot, mm. humid, sweating the entire time. Just, it was that was miserable. July at Fort Benning is miserable. Yeah. I yeah. remember coming into Fort, going into formation at like 3.30 in the morning and just dripping sweat while standing in formation. I was like, how is it this hot? And the, uh, <laughs> it smelled like a paper plant and it sounded like cicadas all the time. Uh, yeah. My experience. <laughs> um, yeah. So. So you did your, your two years of ROTC and you were branch or did you get to select? How, how does that work? How did you become an officer in the cab? You, well, you, you said that they just treated you as, as armor at first, right? Yeah. So we got to make a wish list in ROTC. Um, so armor was actually top on my list. Um, so I got my branch of choice. Um, they, was it the boots? Did you want those boots with the, uh, the straps? I wanted this silly hat. <laughs> um, I was actually pretty geeked because like you find out if you're going to be cab or armor once you get your first set of orders. And um, I got my orders were to 173rd um, in uh, Schweinfurt, Germany at the time uh, yeah. with their cab unit. And I was pumped i was going to an airborne cab unit i i that would have been anything better and uh i had one of my best friends at rotc he got branched same thing same assignment so we were going to be going to the same place we got to fort knox um like the first week of officer basic uh me him and two other guys that were supposed to go there got diverted two guys that got sent to jrtc uh to be platoon leaders down there and then uh me and this other guy had to get stay at fort knox to be basic training xos for a year oh so, my god and i mean they got the uh the 173rd guys they were deploying um it would have been like a couple of months before we finished aobc i think it was Mm-hmm. Um, the weird thing is though is they actually deployed and took over for the unit that i ended up going to at fort knox or i mean uh, fort drum mm. and then they're the unit that replaced us in the logar province uh when we left in 2009 at the end of 2009 so yeah. Regardless of what unit I went to, I would have been going to the same locations, but <laughs> just a different time different. period. Yeah. <laughs> fighting season, not fighting season. Or did you right. spend a year? What's that? Did you spend a year in Afghanistan? Yeah, I was there from Christmas Day to Christmas Day, uh, 2008 to 2009. Wow. Wow. Um, I myself have never had to endure a whole year. 10 months was, was the longest I had to do. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine. It's like, oh my God, a whole calendar year. Uh, <laughs> um, so you, you said to Fort Trump, obviously you said that that you um, 
you know, you were used to that type of weather, that type of environment, which was, which was hunky dory for you. But how'd you find your, your first unit? Uh, you come into, you come into Fort Drum and are they, you immediately a platoon leader or yeah, do something to prove yourself to be, I mean, cause that's an awesome job. Yeah. Platoon leader. Like so, one of the guys that gets saluted. <laughs> so I, uh, I came in in a little bit different situation because I had that year at Fort Knox and uh, that I was already a first Lieutenant by the time I got there uh, to Fort drum. Um, So I guess everybody assumed I had like a little more experience, which I definitely (laughs) did not. Um, But you had an inventory. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I can do how to do a 15, six by then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I went, they were, they had just come back from their, uh, deployment. They had a 15 month deployment before I got there. Mm. Um, and they were still refitting and getting everybody into new positions. And, uh, I fell right into a platoon. Um, and I was extremely lucky because I had one of the best NCOs you could ask for as a platoon sergeant. Um, this guy That's was awesome. A monster. He was like one best ranger competition at, at one point in his career. He, yeah, this guy was a stud. Um, I don't know if you've ever run across a, a he was Sergeant First Class Higley at the time. Um, but uh, I think he's last I knew he was a first sergeant. Uh, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy was awesome. And um, it was, it was, it was an easy job. Like I, I had no problem because I had really good NCOs. Um, and there were a few bad, bad apples in the platoon and uh, we, we did what we needed to do, but, um, I am pretty confident that I had a pretty good relationship with my NCOs and, and, I love that job. Like, yeah. I want to stay there forever, but was there, um, I mean, knowing that and we'll, we'll get to you writing the book and stuff, but I don't know. Did you have this feeling that eventually you were going to write a book and were you like picking out character traits as you went along? <laughs> this this seems like something that I would do. Huh? Not until I got to the squadron staff. Ah, um, gotcha. We'll, we'll yeah. get to that. We'll get to that then, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we, I had some definite characters in my platoon. Um, and we had, we had one bad NCO at the beginning where um, it was just, he, he was in E6 that had gotten where he was simply because he had been there for a very, very, very long time. Uh, and it was more of a, it's your turn kind of thing than it was a merit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had to, to do what we had to do to, to make sure that there wasn't going to be, cause at the time we thought we were going to Iraq and like right. Iraq was a, a shit show at the time. And I, I was like, I'm not taking this guy he's going to put people in danger. And so we, we go, we had to shuffle some things around, but um, by the time we were ready to deploy, um, we, I had a solid platoon. Uh, I was very comfortable with uh, where we were at. 
I don't have any anybody I would want to write into a satire novel for sure. <laughs> no. um, and then right when we got it, right where we wanted it, I got uh, plucked from the platoon because a new lieutenant came in and I was oh. the guy and uh, I got put up on staff because uh, our troop already had an XO. So what did that feel like? That sucked. Um, so give me, I, give me a solid metaphor to what that feels like. Um, well, I'll say this. So the reason, one of the reasons I got plucked was because at Fort Knox, before I left there, I had done a spur ride, which uh, for anybody mm-hmm. who doesn't know is a cavalry initiation where uh, you go through like it's anywhere from 24 hours to 48 hours of just like constant, like, Drills and tests and stuff. Oh, and no, that's a different thing. What it was like when you get <laughs> taken out of your platoon. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good analogy for it. Um, but the, uh, so the last exercise in this uh, spur ride, we were doing uh, some mount training. And we were clearing a building. One of the guys was simulated casually. So I picked him up. Um, car- fireman carrying him out the door. I stepped off the steps and my knee buckled in the opposite direction. Mm. Um, there was a, a loud pop and a lot of cursing. And it turns out after multiple army doctors were visited, I blew out my ACL and uh, tore my meniscus. So I didn't find out that until like eight months later because the army doctor at Fort Knox told me I, I, was fine and mm-hmm. let me continue on. So, um, I'd been training with this thing for, for a long time. And then it finally, it just kept popping out and I kept biting it every time we do a platoon assault or anything like that. So I ended up getting my ACL completely replaced, um, and my meniscus repaired and all that jazz. And then, uh, I was on the end of my couple of month recovery from the knee surgery when I got shifted up to staff and mm-hmm. they, so so blowing out my knee was less painful than getting taken out of the platoon and uh moved up to squadron staff yeah so. i i uh i feel you so at one point i was a special forces team sergeant which was the greatest job i could ever ask for on a, on a halo team jumping out of 14,000 feet, all that good stuff. And when I was removed from my team, it was just my turn to move on. And it felt like I had postpartum depression for like a year. (laughs) I've just felt like, damn it. Uh, Every, like at that point, I uh, became a former action guy, Um, which. You feel like your cool days are over. The cool days are over. It's like I became a staff dude and um, that wasn't any fun. Um, So I got out. But uh, so the, and and you, then you have to go deploy to Afghanistan where I assume you're at the battalion level um, and your team or your uh, platoon is was maybe on some like outstation or something like that and and did you feel a little bit like you had um you had to live vicariously through this new lieutenant but also you probably hated his guts 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All those things. Was he a good guy? Yeah, he's a nice guy. I, I uh, we still, I mean, not very often, but I talked to him about a year ago. Um, yeah, he's a good dude. He took good care of the guys. Everybody in the platoon loved him. So um, it was just, so the way it worked was when we got to Fob Altimer, um, we were already in a pretty austere location and uh, there were no like outposts from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of our squadron's job was establishing those outposts. So for the first couple of months, the entire squadron <clears throat> operated out of Fob Altimer. So I got to <coughs> excuse me, go on a couple of patrols with them. And then, uh, sip of bourbon. <laughs> and then, uh, it, we, uh, we started building cops after that, um, in, in even more remote locations. Um, and I was always keeping tabs on the Cherokee troop guys that uh, I had been with. And it was, I mean, one of the most intense memories I have was just hearing that, my old platoon had hit an IED on one of the routes, uh, down to, uh, that cop that we were building. And, uh, the intensity of just waiting in the talk for reports to come back on if anybody was hurt and praying to God, there was no report of KIAs. So, um, turns out the, the platoon leader was, the only one who got a minor energy injury and a bruised ass from, uh, <laughs> from the IED. So, oh, so it was all good, but it's still, it's, yeah. Yeah. That those, those are some intense times that, that people who haven't been there, um, definitely don't understand. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there's no words that you could use, or maybe you could, since you're, you're a novelist, but, um, no words that I could relate to anybody that would properly communicate what that feels like. I, I suppose to use an analogy, it would be finding out your child was potentially injured or something. Yeah, like um, it's like you're waiting in the waiting room of a doctor's office for yeah. a, a bad diagnosis or something. Right. Um, well, thank God that everybody uh, made it through there. And by the way, I, I, I know where you were um, in, in that province. And that province is, to say the least, like when God was building the earth and was like, this is going to be a beautiful place. And this is not, he definitely made it a beautiful place. He just forgot to add any trees um, <laughs> or clay. It's just filled with like dust and um yep the time I spent there was um it, it was just horrible. <laughs> it was like, I, I just, the damn moon or something. Yeah, it is it's like the surface of the damn moon. And when it rains, it, it was just super nasty and um and it was just desolate. I think it was maybe one of the most desolate places I've ever been in the army. Yeah. And just like looking around like people, why are we fighting for this place? <laughs> I mean, right. You're like, well, what's yeah. going on? Um, but yeah, high desert, probably what, like 10,000 feet at that, that airfield and, yeah. and just windy as hell all the damn time. 
And true, uh, my luck, the weather there was pretty much like it was at Fort Drum, but drier. <laughs> right? yeah, we, we got, I would say, just as much snow there that winter as mm. we did at Fort Drum the winter before. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hell, glad you made it out of there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so at this point, you're saying 2008, 2009, and I know you ended up transitioning out of the military in 2010. Was this um, a part, I mean, was this because your knee was all jacked up or did you make a decision like, eh, it's my time? Well, I mean, there was a, a multiple factors. So I went into all of this. Uh, I never really intended to make the army a career. Um, I, I was kind of just playing it by ear. Um, but then with the knee getting jacked up, um, not getting any PL time in on deployment, um, and being in a staff position, the whole deployment, it just staff sucked the life out of you. Yeah. And I mean, at that point I'm going up against all of my peer group who, most of them have had PL time on a deployment and it just felt like I'm not doing anybody any favors and going to a career course and trying to command a Mm -hmm. a trooper company with no combat experience or no experience deployed in a company level. So um, I just, I made the decision pretty much while I was over there that I Mm -hmm. was going to be, done and um i'm glad i did uh especially where i'm at now uh none of this would have happened if i would have stayed in so everything happened for a reason yeah i mean having the you got to grow up a little bit to realize that in fact everything does happen for a reason right um and, and as painful as, as some of those might be because yeah i mean nobody or i wouldn't say nobody but a fair amount of people don't join the military during a time of war and and hope oh god i hope i don't get tested especially in combat arms right and um and shit 2008, 2009, you had two wars to choose from. Like you said, you guys were like, let's go to Iraq. We're going to Iraq. And then we're like, ah, wrong war. Now, <laughs> I mean, the pickings are actually pretty slim if you're not in two special forces units, basically. Right. The likelihood of you really deploying and seeing any action is pretty slim. So, um, but, but I, I understand that the position you're in is, was, having to, to compete against, against folks who just by sheer luck may have, um, had a leg up on you. So, um, so you decided to get out, then what, what'd you do, uh, upon exiting God's army? (laughs) So I had no plan. Oh, good. Uh, That always seems to work out. I, I (laughs) I had actually, uh, was thinking about the writing route then, but I wanted to get into film mm. um, and screenwriting. So as long as you didn't tell anybody that when you were in the military, you, you're perfectly fine. <laughs> I, I, I kept, I was studying for the GRE while I was in, but I kept all that pretty close to the, close to the right. chest. So um, I got out though. And then um, 
like the the minute I got home, uh, my now wife asked me out on a date. Um, and so I never ended up, I was supposed to move to Philadelphia with a buddy that was living there. I came home to Michigan because my nephew was supposed to be born, um, started uh, dating my now wife and never ended up going to Philadelphia other than to drive there and pick up all of my junk that the army had shipped to Philadelphia (laughs) and then drive it back to Michigan. Um, I ended up, my brother's a financial advisor for Edward Jones and he talked me into giving that a try. So I spent a year as the world's worst financial advisor um, and knocking on doors uh, was not for me. That's like what you do as a Edward Jones guy for the first Mm -hmm. year. Um, So I ended up going, falling back on my supply chain management degree from state and uh, got a job with Gordon Food Service, which is a a food distributor uh, here in Grand Rapids. And I worked there for five years. And then uh, I was working on this novel. I was getting close to being done with the first draft. Um, But I mean, I had two kids in that time period Mm -hmm. and uh, I was basically writing when anybody else in the house was unconscious or any time I could steal at work. Um, And then my buddy who is a, a lawyer who runs his own firm, he had a paralegal that, uh, basically just ditched him. Um, and he was in need of a new paralegal offering a competitive salary. And he told me I could write anytime I wasn't actively engaged in firm business. So I made the jump over to that. Uh, so I'm now working for my best friend from college. Mm -hmm. I get, uh, write whenever I get a chance and, uh, it's been a pretty good gig since then. So that's awesome, man. That that is really cool. It's it's interesting too that you brought up the financial planner thing. Um, just because um, w- when I retired, I, I got a lot of calls from from people asking me if I wanted to be a financial planner, and I think it's something. It's especially Edward Jones is really good at recruiting people in the military. Um, what are uh, let's let's ask let's put you on the spot. Two things you liked about it and would tell veterans is a good reason to do it. And two things you didn't like about it. And you would tell veterans steer clear. So I got a lot of exercise. Um, <laughs> I walked for hours a day. Um, Cause you get like a territory where you go and you just knock on doors and you introduce yourself to people and you try to strike up a conversation. Mm. And a lot of times you just get, Hello, my name is Brett. Do you have any money? (laughs) Exactly. Right. Nobody wants to talk about their finances on the doorstep. Um, But I probably lost about 20 pounds in the the year I was doing that. I was like the lightest I'd been since I was on the cross country team in high school. And uh, so that was, that was good. I I trimmed away a lot of extra weight there, but uh, the, Wow. What other thing did I like about it? Uh, (laughs) I got, I got my own office. So I was running my own branch. Um, so that was nice. I was my own boss, which was good and bad because in the days you don't want to do anything, nobody's there to make you do it. Um, so that was good. Um, couple the bad things though are just like, 
unless you have like a sales personality, like it's, it's hard to make it in the first couple of years if you don't already have a, a good book of business handed to you. Wow. Um, there's and, some, and it sounds there. like in your life, um, I mean, <laughs> you didn't have to pursue your wife, right? Like, so yeah, rejection's not in your DNA. <laughs> I don't have to anything there. So, <laughs> but I mean, there's guys that were great at it. I had a, a friend who was one of like my mentors while I was there and he would come every once in a while, walk the territory I was walking where I was getting like no response and this guy would strike up a conversation with everybody who came to the door and be there talking to them about their finances for like 10, 15, 20 minutes. I'm like, holy shit. Like I get 30 seconds out of this person before they slam the door in my face. So, I mean, if you got it, you got it. And right. uh, I think people that are just inherently good at selling and talking mm-hmm. to people, it's a great route to go. But if you're at an introvert. All, and all an introvert, you should stay away from it. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one negative, probably. What What's another thing you would caution people against? Uh, just you know, when when you have to sell investments that are all pretty much the same, like like. Our, the, our big thing was mutual funds uh, right. and they, we had like eight mutual fund families and they're all good. Like they're not going to offer you a bad mutual fund family, but you're supposed to pick one and learn their story and be very passionate about it. And then uh, inevitably, whatever person you're trying to pitch these things to is like, well, what makes these mutual funds better than the other mutual funds. And like, I had a hard time being like nothing. Like they're all- <laughs> You just fucking pick one, man. Here. Sure, exactly. uh, like I have five playing cards. Pick one. Right. They're all the same card. They're all, they're all with the index because exactly. that's the smart thing to do. Right. So I, I had a hard time getting around that. Like, yeah. being able to like sell something that I knew really wasn't much different than the other options we were offering. And it sounds like the whole time you were thinking about how do I make time to write a book at what time in your, your life did you think, well, shit, I like to tell some stories. Is this like a standby me thing where when you were like a kid, you went on a camping trip and you wouldn't just tell your friends disgusting stories that you made up (laughs) or, or did it just develop over the fact that like when you're in the military, you come across characters who you, could not make up in fiction. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I mean, I started like, I really got into like the young authors thing when I was like in middle school and stuff like that. Um, but I started writing for a friend's website in college. Uh, his website was called Lies About Ben. And it was every day he would post a different lie about his brother, Ben. Uh, <laughs> so he had a couple like contributing uh writers that would just make up stupid posts and and write about it <laughs> how did ben feel about um, this <laughs> and did uh, ben exist yeah ben, ben exists i don't know how to call the website but um <laughs> oh my so God. I was doing that and i got uh, a lot of good feedback um on uh, some of the blog posts that i had made for that and Is this just because you're like an inherent smart ass? I think a little bit. Uh, yeah. 
You know, no, I I probably spent more time on a lot of these posts than I did on my homework in college. <laughs> like it was something I enjoyed doing, so I, right. I poured some effort into it. Um, but I kind of put that aside during all the army stuff, and but on deployment, we had a lot of ridiculous stuff happen mm. on our deployment, and I remember telling one of the guy, other guys in the S3 shop, like nobody would believe this was like true to life. If I put this in a novel and told everybody it was fake. Um, so that's kind of what sparked me thinking like, I should like start jotting some of this stuff down and revisit it later. And it was about probably two years outside of the army where I started outlining in earnest a, a, a storyline and writing things down. So did you um, have a, a mentor who who kind of coached you through it or was it just something that you kind of had to your, was your wife like pushing you and saying hey you should definitely do this or or she like no. dude no we have two kids man <laughs> like writers don't make shit. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, she was good with it. I just, like I said, I did most of my writing when everybody else in the house was sleeping and, um, I just kind of stole time where I could, that wasn't interfering with the, her, the kids. And, um, yeah, I didn't really have any like mentors to bounce things off from i did a lot of reading uh, so that's mm-hmm. one thing you hear constantly when you're researching how to do this stuff is uh everybody's just like read endlessly so i wrote read a lot of books on writing um mm-hmm. i read like stephen king's book on writing i read uh like textbook style stuff um, but then a lot of stuff in the same genre that I was trying to write. I mean, one of my favorite books is catch 22 and that's kind of what I tried to, <laughs> yeah, model I was wondering. so, um, yeah, I, I read a lot of the humorous fiction and satire and books on writing and just, I did it all the wrong ways a lot of times before mm. I, I got it the right way. So do you uh, throw in a little like um, Slaughterhouse Five in there, or? Oh, I love Slaughterhouse Five. I love anything <laughs> yeah. about it. They, yeah, they, well, the dudes, the dudes. If you, I mean, do you identify uh, at all with him? Uh, a little bit. I mean, uh, I, I, this conversation can go in in a dark turn here. <laughs> uh, so, all right, let's let, let's let's take a, a, a slight detour. Um. Full disclosure, I hadn't got a chance to read the book yet. Uh, Brett and I connected and and I um, this just happened so fast. I didn't get a chance to read it yet, but I will. I've, I've read all the books of the folks who um, who've written things on the podcast so far. So I, I can't break that streak. But um, did you it, your time in Afghanistan and your time in the military did the um the quagmire of it all feed your desire to to write something the the absurdity kind of of you know the the global war on terrorism right and and by the way i i'm i've always been a flag waving um supporter you know i think we had to go do what we had to do myself uh 
you know, I, I had to go to Iraq and, and, and in the end, you look back in my perspective, at least I look back and I think, well, these are all just people, every house I went into that I wasn't invited in. It's like, well, you know, these are just people, they made a decision and now I'm here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and, and so did, did that kind of feed your perspective of for writing Kilroy was here? A little bit. Um, I mean, I, I think the most patriotic thing you can do is, is to question the things that are being done and why they're being done and uh, ensuring that they're being done for the appropriate reasons. Um, I, I guess I, when we were there, I never really had any, uh, any qualms about why we were there. Um, so much as how we were going about the things that we were doing while we were there. Right. Um, and, and I tried to lay that out in as funny a way as I could in the mm-hmm. book. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of it is, is funny and both aggravating at the same time. And, and everything is exaggerated. Um, it's, it's, it's exaggerated for the sake of the story. Um, right. it's just, it's meant to be a comedy and kind of over the top. Um, <laughs> like, even though like a lot of what's in the book is based on actual events and things that has happened probably more than most people realize that, that have read the book. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it's hard not to like question everything while you're there. And especially right. when you've got a lot of time to think about it when you're sitting in a, a staff office uh, the whole time too. So, yeah, I get that. And, and from that staff office perspective, there's um, a dark comedy of it all because when, when you're, and, and, you know, obviously you didn't, you didn't get a chance to be a platoon leader in Afghanistan, but you know, when you're that close to bang on a deployment, you think of, do I have the right kit? Do I have the right loadout? Uh, what's going to happen if I do, if we come under contact, if we take a casualty, so you don't have that 10,000 literal 10,000 foot perspective where, you know, you're, you're at staff, you're, you're looking at things from a drone. Right. There's been times where people are sitting in the fob in the op center, knowing that there's an ID hundreds of yards away from your people and you can't get the message to them. You're just like, Oh, you know, but at the same time, because of your perspective, there's nothing wrong with appreciating the dark humor. That is the fact that if you keep sending meat into a grinder, you're going to make sausage, (laughs) you know, and, and, um, and sometimes by the way, that sausage needs to be made and and for, for whatever reason. and, And, you know, I don't think, any, any of us needs to understand it fully. Um, but, but that sausage is going to be made one way or another. Right. Um, but it, it does get infuriating it's, you know, we've all lost people, friends, and, and we can look back now years later, think, man, 
like when, when we left Afghanistan, I was like, fuck dude, I lost these friends and for what, you know? Sure. Um, and if nothing else is they, they were there for a season to, uh, flavor our own lives and experiences. And, and, you know, we, we carry that with us. So, um, you know, these things need to be told. These stories need to be told no matter how dark or how funny or how tragic some of them may be. These are stories that need to be told. You you feel that way. And is, is is that kind of why you, you you know, I don't want to say I have the courage to, but putting yourself out there, you have the courage to like go write something and and put yourself out there. So is is that kind of one of the reasons why you decided to do that? Yeah. Um, And and the reason I decided to go the, the comedy route um, just, I mean, aside from like, that's just the way my, my brain is wired. Um, Do you think you're funny? (laughs) (laughs) I am up here. Are you Mickey Spillane? I entertain myself. Um, But no, like I just, you know, I felt like that was a a gap that needed to be filled um, because a lot of the, the stories coming out of the, the, the guy was, was, uh, they're all either like the, the kicking indoors stories or they're the, the broken soldier stories of like coming home with PTSD. And those don't get me wrong. Those are very important stories to be told too. But, uh, I, I felt like there was a, a gap, um, with, I mean, there's a lot of funny shit that happens on yeah. deployment, and <laughs> yeah. people don't. And and not all people come home from deployment with PTSD, yeah, PTSD or scarred. Like, I mean, it's not making light of like the people that do, but um, there's a lot of people that uh, are underrepresented in the literary world from from that perspective, and. Um, mm-hmm. have you ever heard of the book Fobbit by, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, uh, that book, I, I, I found out about that well after I was, uh, into writing this and I was like, God damn it. Like somebody already took <laughs> stole my thunder. Um, but no, that's a great book. The, the, uh, the author of that actually is, uh, he edited my next book. Um, nice. so, um, but it was, uh, it's kind of cool to see that from the Iraq perspective. And I'm hoping that the, this book kind of fills that, that gap from the Afghanistan perspective. So. Do, you, do you feel that uh, as you continue your writing career, that it'll always be military stuff or. So this next one is not uh, uh, military at all. So um, I made a complete departure from the, the military fiction and uh, it's actually based in a small town in Michigan nice. um, where like their mayor of 70 years is uh, dies gruesomely. And uh, there's a contentious mayoral election that follows and the town kind of gets divided. So it's, it's kind of a political satire mm-hmm. um, on the. Uh, where do you come uh, up with this stuff, man? Exactly. <laughs> you just read the headlines and you're good to go. Uh, yeah, you're fucking right, right? Um, uh, so, so yeah. huh? 
no, it's, uh, it's again, yeah, like a, a dark humor. It brings mm-hmm. in a little bit of the uh, Michigan dog man legend. And uh, it's, it's a fun book. So I'm hoping it does well. I love it. It's, it's regional. Do you have a title for it yet? Or Yeah, it's called uh, Sly Fox Hollow. Sly Fox Hollow. And uh, when can we expect to see that on Amazon? Or uh, your favorite bookstore? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, <laughs> I'm currently, you, you ever watched the movie Misery? I know you like Stephen King. <laughs> I have not seen it or read it, but I, I know of the book and I know kind of the storyline. So are you are you like uh actively avoiding it? I this is gonna sound bad, but the only book I've ever read by Stephen King is his book on writing. No way. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Yeah, <laughs> that is totally weird, man. Because uh, I mean, he's written so many books. I know. Um, I, yeah, and I'm but, familiar. I've seen a lot of the movies. I, I'm familiar with the books. I just have never. No, when you said you have to read a lot to to go this writing route, um, is it? Do you feel like? you have to be selective about reading because do you, do you feel like you're influenced enough where you might accidentally start writing like somebody else? It's funny. Uh, you say that cause that definitely happens. Um, so like, especially like if I pick up a, a Vonnegut book yeah. or something like yeah. that, I'm just like, ah, kind of, I want to write like this and yes. like try to like, emulate that but then you pick up another book that you end up really liking and you're like you start noticing that your writing kind of sounds like that so Mm -hmm. the whole process is just like taking in all of these different styles and letting them kind of meld and like form your own style um and i think a lot of a lot of authors it just is a matter of time before they find one that they zero in on a a style that they zero in on. So, yeah. Um, I've read, uh, a few books by, on, I can never get his damn name, right. The author of fight club. I can, I can't pronounce it. Oh yeah. Chuck. Chuck. Yeah. Polinchick. Anyways. (laughs) Um, and he definitely has a style. As a matter of fact, like once you get through like two books, you're like, this seems like it's the same tone or I'm just reading in the same tone. Brett Easton Ellis, same thing where you're like, like I hated reading American psycho. Um, I just couldn't do it just because it seems so like pretentious. Um, but, but you also, you know, I'm not a writer, but I start playing stories in my head. And like, as I'm like recalling things in my head from, like my real life. <laughs> like I'm telling myself as if I'm like Brett Easton Ellis telling a story, you know, uh, or, or Chuck. And, um, that's a sick bastard, by the way, I, we, we, my buddy and I did a, it wasn't a competition, but we just went through a scene. We're like, Hey, let's like, fine. Let's Google the most shocking and fucked up books in history. And, um, and a lot of Chucks are on there. Um, and uh, so if you, if you don't want to see anything horrible, you should not read, not read. Um, 
there's a lot of stuff you shouldn't be, read by Chuck, but there's also some other stories, uh, not by Chuck, uh, the, um, the wasp factory. Don't read that one. I don't recommend it. It's horrible. No, uh, it's not by Chuck. Write it down. Uh, and then there's a story by Chuck that has something to do with a swimming pool. Don't read that one either. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. But uh, I'm don't, don't look it up. Anyways. Um, so, all right. So we, we've kind of, we've, we're, we're running short on time here and we have, we've kind of like, we've uh, kind of touched around the edges of, of Kilroy was here. So if you don't mind, um, tell us a little bit more about the book. What, what, uh, what somebody should know or what to expect when picking it up. And, and if they're considering picking it up, you know, what are some of the redeeming qualities that you think as the author, um, that would compel somebody to grab it? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Kilroy was here. Um, it is loosely based off from my 2009 deployment to Afghanistan, um, in the Logar province. Um, so the whole book covers the span of a single year of deployment. Um, the opening scene is them flying into Bagram air force base and, uh, the main character, Lieutenant Jared Rye, um, is loosely based on myself. Um, and he's kind of in a similar position to where I was, uh, as a, uh, officer that's kind of in, in transition. He, um, is hoping to kind of leave his mark on the war in Afghanistan. Um, he's hoping that he'll get some platoon leader time, um, and see some action, uh, and things of course, uh, don't go that direction. And he, uh, gets tasked, um, into different positions and it, it's all about his time, um, in a, a staff position, um, as he goes through this deployment at, uh, fob alternator instead of fob alternator. <laughs> um, but, uh, it's got like a laundry list of, uh, pretty quirky characters. Um, you've got, uh, they're, mo- they're mostly staff officers, um, mm-hmm. and, uh, higher level NCOs. Yeah. Right. Um, prime pickings for making fun of, um, yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it just kind of follows him through this year where he's hoping to leave his mark. Uh, and he just kind of sees that his deployment is not going to be what he hoped it would be. Um, but he ends up, um, finding a little bit of sanity in the relationship he builds with uh, one of the squadron's interpreters um, who has been um, indelicately just dubbed Terp number two. Um, (laughs) And their relationship kind of builds throughout the deployment and he kind of gains a new perspective on uh, why he's there and uh, his hopes for Afghanistan as he leaves the place uh, a year later. So. Well, I can't wait to read it, man. And it sounds like you did have a career in sales after all. You just had to push it a little bit further. Uh, <laughs> um, so your synopsis of Kilroy was here is interesting because do you feel that this book is, and I, I imagine so, but it's self-reflective, right? Like it had to have been 
would you consider it a healing experience writing it as cliche as that sounds, but you had a, a canvas to put your memories and emotions and, and maybe what you felt were your shortcomings on. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it definitely helped to kind of like sort out some of the, the feelings I had about FOMO. like, what's that? FOMO. Yeah. Well, I had a lot of FOMO when I was sitting with the squadron staff there and yeah. uh, really was missing out. And it, like, you come back from a deployment like that, where you've, you've been your primary duty felt like it was to make sure the coffee was right for the, the squadron XO and squadron commander. It, you just kind of like, what the hell was I doing there? Like mm-hmm. I didn't sign up for that. Um, so the book, writing the book was kind of a cathartic way to, to process that, um, to put it in a little bit different perspective, force myself to think of it in a different perspective, um, than what I had uh, initially come out of it with. Um, and it was a good way to connect with, uh, some of the guys that I had been there with, uh, like kind of lost a little bit of touch with, uh, mm-hmm. after I got back, I don't know how many guys from my unit contacted me after the book came out and was like, we're like, Holy shit. I'm so happy you wrote this book. Dude, and, that was me. Yeah. Like <laughs> I remember all of this. So it was, uh, that was really cool to, to get the feedback from those guys and know that I did it justice. So the other platoon leaders, who were in the squadron? Is that what they call them in the calf, right? Yeah. Yep. Did they realize? And and by the way, again, I haven't read the book yet, but the way you have summarized it, where it's a guy who's hoping to get some PL time in country. Like, have any of them said, "Dude, we know the only way you would get platoon time is if one of us died." <laughs> Have you came to grips with that (laughs) where you're thinking, I would love PL time, but somebody there has to be fired or killed. (laughs) I, uh, I haven't heard that from a lot of them. The, the guys that have you thought it, uh, yeah, (laughs) it's okay to admit it, man. It's okay to admit it. Like you, you have to think those things. You're like, dude, if some, if one of these fuckers goes down, I'm ready to pop in. (laughs) boom like that yeah uh, I guess I haven't vocalized that (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) therapy's free here bro (laughs) you're right Um, I don't know I I, by the time it got to that point we had like I don't know I I felt like our squadron commander was like hoarding lieutenants Uh. we had like lieutenants in the talk as battle captains and like extra mm. dudes in the S4 shop and the S1 shop. So, I mean, it was whoever's guess was going to get tagged to move down to a PL position if anybody had to. But Yeah. But you know, there, there's uh, this weird perspective from people who haven't lived it where we all uh, I don't want to say lionize, but we, from an outsider's perspective, people feel like we're all robots and also that we're all 
hoorah, hoorah, hoorah. And every time, you know, everybody who, who, who became a casualty was some type of hero, but if you're in long enough and I was in 20 years and you know, you, you got to go to Afghanistan in a time where a lot of stuff was going on in Afghanistan, but you know, eventually you're going to read a name of somebody who got blown up or whatever. And people don't like to hear this, but sometimes you look at that name and you're like, that sucks. But dude, that dude was an asshole. <laughs> you're like, we're like, man, I know that guy stole somebody's wife. Maybe he got what was coming to him, you know, and, and people don't like to hear that, but that's, I mean, it, that's life. It's the same as if you're a construction worker and, you know, a fucking load of bricks lands on some dude that construction worker is probably like, yeah, probably got what is coming to him. Uh, unpopular opinion. And maybe, maybe I should just stop talking now. <laughs> well, I, think, I think when you do any, like this type of, that type of work, uh, like it, especially for you, I mean, you've been in, you've been in 20 years you just develop a different relationship with that type of thinking. Like, yeah, you, I mean, most people that, go into the army. I, I was only in for four years, but I did a fair amount of thinking about death and about being blown up by an IED or a, being mortared. Like you just, you, you change your wiring on that kind of mm -hmm. thinking and it becomes easier, I guess, to joke about it or to just accept that that's a, 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 part of what you signed up to do. Yeah. And I guess that's why it was fairly natural to write this book. And like a lot of people that have read it that are civilians are like, Oh my God. And it's like, well, it doesn't, doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Like I just, I formed a different relationship with that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Have you, have you done an audiobook? Uh, I actually bought this microphone for the purpose of that recorded the first chapter and I was like, Holy shit, nobody's going to want to listen to hear me, listen to me talk for an entire book. So <laughs> I, I put the pause on that. I might go back to it later, but yeah, well, um, so we're going to wrap it up here, but, and I don't want you to give away anything from the book per se, but I like to either it's always fun to share either embarrassing or the funny stories, man. So pick one and, uh, and let's hear it from you. Embarrassing or maybe some funny anecdote from your time in service. Okay. So this is actually in the book. Um, I'm okay with giving this piece away. Spoiler uh, alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, so around Easter time frame, when we were over there, we started getting, um, all these care packages and people were getting peeps, like just a never ending fucking flow of peeps. And uh, so we had in the S3 shop, we had this pyramid of boxes of peeps and our squadron op sergeant major who he had developed this uh, fascination to, with challenging me to all like, kinds of like different uh, like eating competitions and things like that. He wanted to see how many peeps I could fit in my mouth at one time. Uh, tell me bunny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the extreme. So we, uh, we set a time and uh, he gathered up 
like all the NCOs and all the officers on the fob that he could find and brought them to the S3 shop. So I had this huge crowd uh, in the S3 shop and people were like taking bets and shit. And uh, so I ended up, I got 26 peeps in my mouth uh, and was able to close my mouth before I uh, ralphed them into the trash can. And uh, like right as I got the last peep in, the fucking squadron commander kicked the door open and just lit everybody out, shoot everybody out. And then slammed the door and then I like puked in the trash can. (laughs) Oh my God. What is is he, the fun police? Yeah, you you get it. <laughs> once you read the book, you'll get it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, uh, people have died from Chubby Bunny. I was close. Like, <laughs> it, it was uh, it was pushing it. Um, as far as I know, I still hold the uh, RC East record for uh, Chubby Bunny. So yeah, and you know what, dude? If you own that record right now, it's never going to be broken. Think about that. Well, I like to think that the the Taliban's breaking into a connect somewhere and finding like all the old mail and bunch of yeah stuff. if the taliban got a hold of chubby buddies they're shoving it up a different orifice yeah. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> um all right well i appreciate it thank you for joining me brett allen the author of Killroy was here you can get it on amazon is there any preferred location for for uh people to get it from i know that Amazon takes the king's ransom. Yeah, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can order it off from Barnes and Noble, um, and you can. I mean, you can go into any bookstore and ask mm-hmm. them, and they'll bring it in for you. So right on. And um, obviously, Brett spent time as a cab officer at Fort Drum, served in OEF, Afghanistan, and and now he's put in his time on the Return to Base podcast. So I appreciate your time, Brett, and uh, best of luck to you. And can't wait for, hold up, wait for it, Slypox Hollow. Can't wait to see Slypox Hollow. I expect my autographed copy personalized. (laughs) Hey, I'll take the transcript. There you go. Manuscript. So appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. All right. So that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Return to Base. And if you can go out and support Brett Allen by getting his book, Kilroy Was Here. It's available at Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. And he also has a another book coming out, Sly Fox Hollow, which, which seems pretty interesting. So go to veteranlife.com. Check out our website. Follow the Return to Base podcast if you haven't already. And go out and buy Brett Allen's book, Kilroy Was Here wherever you can. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next time.